Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you with me. Thank you so much for joining an honor and a privilege to have you with me here in the Freedom Hut. We've got uh, quite a show planned for you. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Big story everyone's talking about today is uh, the tariffs, the steel tariffs. Um, so Trump and trade and China, it's all happening just like just like he said it would. And now people are getting upset about it. And here's what the president said. We'll be in, imposing tariffs on steel imports and tariffs on aluminum imports. And you're going to see a lot of good things happen. You're going to see expansions of the companies. I know that, uh, David, you said you'd be expanding. Uh, Tim, I know you said you were expanding your role. Pretty much all of, of you will immediately be expanding if we give you that level playing field, if we give you that help. So we will see how this works out now. Uh, we'll see if, in fact, the president's assessment of the situation with China and what should be done about it is correct. We've got Gordon Chang joining us later to discuss that in more detail. Look, a, a part of this is that up until this point, it's been mostly U.S. administrations concerned with upsetting China, doing anything that would rock the boat on trade with China. And Trump even pointed out that there have been some some who came before him in the White House who really just they didn't have a clue. People have no idea how badly our country has been treated by other countries, uh, by people representing us that didn't have a clue. Or if they did, then they should be ashamed of themselves because they've destroyed the steel industry. They've destroyed the aluminum industry and other industries, frankly. When you look at all the plants, the car plants, automobile plants that moved down to Mexico for no reason whatsoever, except we didn't know what we were doing. So we're bringing it all back. We will see. There are plenty of conservatives that I'm sure some of you will be hearing from in the days and weeks ahead who will argue that tariffs are inherently state action that favors some industry at the expense of everyone not in that industry. Now, in this case, you have the national security considerations of a domestic steel industry. I get that. Some say that's overblown. Uh, with aluminum, uh, you have some companies that are going to be upset by this, clearly, right? And th this will just be one example of many. But uh, aluminum producers will think this is great, domestic aluminum producers. But if you're Anheuser-Busch or Coca-Cola, you will not think this is great because your cost of business is going to go up as a result of it. Um, interesting, though, that those who will always claim that the government shouldn't be picking winners and losers often fail to take into account, this is just my 
feeling on these things. Well, I guess I'm doing a radio show, so all this is my feeling on things. Um, but the government is already always picking winners and losers with the way that it regulates and manages the economy. It's just a question of how much and who the winners are and who the losers are with regard to a global marketplace now. So uh, this will now be put to the test. Because the market dropped 400-plus points or so, people are concerned about this one. Uh, but one a one-day market drop because people get spooked about what's going to happen in a possible trade war with China. It's, you can't you can't take too much away from just what the market does on any one given day. But Trump is, hey, he's keeping promises, folks. To those of you who are like, I want, I want the Trump agenda, I want him to do what he said he was going to do, that is certainly, uh, that is certainly happening right now. This is part of what he has been pushing for for quite some time. But I want to revisit something from yesterday now as well, uh, as you have the departure. And I, I was joking around a little bit about how I'm, I'm pro hope, and we should give hope a chance, and don't don't let uh, don't let hope disappear, and all that. I, I've never heard her speak, and I don't know her. Um, I all I know about her is what I've read. I do know, however, that there was something something funky about the whole situation. There was something wrong with what had gone on in this case, and none other, none other than than the mooch. Hey, the mooch. He was over at CNN and he had the following. The current situation and the current culture inside the administration stays exactly the way it is. Right. There's literally no change. There will be a lot more departures. Yeah, the morale is at an all time low and it's trending lower. Now, I know a lot of people will say that the. Problems in the White House are of dysfunction, of the people they've brought in. Some of them lack necessary government experience, which that, that has been true in some cases, folks. I'm not going to lie to you. There have been some people brought in with this administration who just couldn't do it. They were the wrong choice. And I don't think that now the administration's not going to publicly kick people after you kick people in the butt once they've already been shown the door. Right. So there's no point in saying that. Uh, but there have been people that were not up for the task they were initially assigned. That is just a fact. Uh, that said, if the morale is so low in the White House, if things are so bad, it's not just because or even primarily because of decision making by John Kelly or anyone else. It is because it has become a clear plan, a clear plot in the media to, as I was saying yesterday, isolate and destroy each and every person in the Trump orbit. And that is why they love the Mueller probe so much. That is also a major major uh, issue here. They're never going to find this Russia collusion because it didn't exist. The whole thing is preposterous, but I can't call it a joke because it's a very effective tool of politics for the Democrats. The process is the punishment. It costs for some people tens of thousands of dollars just for one appearance in terms of legal fees, which some folks brought into this have to pay themselves to sit before Mueller, to sit before uh, you know, House Intelligence Committee or whatever the case may be. Uh, that's a big that's a big problem. That's something that doesn't get factored into much of the analysis on TV about whether or not this was this whole Mueller probe is ethical, whether it's justified or not. Democrats love it because how would how would you like to be somebody in the White House right now who has any relevant knowledge whatsoever of the Trump campaign and Trump 
situation. You may get called behind closed doors, as Hope Hicks did, and seems to me ambushed. I thought this was the case as soon as I saw the initial reporting, but she was testifying before the House Intelligence Committee, I think, for nine hours. And this was a setup, folks. It was a setup. Just like, you remember how they got Flynn? was a leak, and now we're finding out that some people in the FBI didn't even think he lied. So someone broke the law to leak to get Flynn. And then we're seeing, a, well, we can, I, I don't have time to go through every administration figure that's been pushed out by in one way or another, but look at how many of the departures have had a at, at least the media's fingerprints on them, if not they were the whole thing. right? They were the, they were the fuse and the charge. They were the ones that initiated the series of events or the political news cycle that got the departure going. And with Hope Hicks, what we saw was, based on the reporting today, you had a a Democrat, Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee were asking, asked a question after nine hours of interrogation. Okay, after nine hours, Democrats asked, what uh, have you ever had? Has your boss, the president, ever told you to lie? And she conferred with her lawyer. I just read this assessment of today. She conferred with her lawyer. And sure enough, the response that she gave or initially was, well, are we talking about any kind of lie? Like if if Trump says, do I look fat in this? Do I have to give him an honest answer? If someone says, is the president busy and I had to lie to protect his time? Does that does that count? I mean, this is what I read today. It was the other part of the story that initially wasn't wasn't shared. And to give an answer so as not to lie in a row, she said, well, yeah, sometimes, I mean, I've told little, I've told white lies. And they pounced on this. They leaked it right away to the media. They pounced on it. Oh, she's a liar. Trump's a liar. They're all liars. Lie, lie, lie. And she was planning on leaving anyway because of the pressure. Maggie Haberman of the New York Times was reporting that, despite everything everyone's saying about the Russia probe. But even apart from whether it instigated her, this specific incident instigated her departure, it just goes to show you what is going on here. Whether it's the Democrats in Congress or the media, which is really just the public extension of the Democrat agenda, they are taking people out. They have a political hit list and they are removing people from this administration as quickly as they can. It is an embattled an embattled White House, and not because of the challenges of global national security policy, not because they can't handle the economy. No, that stuff is actually going pretty well. Seeing some of the successes flashing on the screen of Fox News a second ago, you know, tax reform, Keystone XL pipeline, Neil Gorsuch, right? Trump is getting, regardless of the process and what is expected when we're talking about things like the personnel around him, Trump is getting it done. And yet they just think if they can isolate him enough and make it as uncomfortable as possible to be an employee of this White House, to serve your country as an employee of this White House, that is a victory for the left. It's a shame. It's a shame. But but more to the point also, this Mueller stuff... This investigation now, whether it's Mueller or the Democrats in the House Intelligence Committee, it seems to me that it exists mostly for leaks to CNN and MSNBC and the the major newspapers, the Times, Washington Post. That's become the M.O. 
And it, it maybe now is really the only reason for their existence. It is the raison d'etre. It is the reason for being of these investigations. So that we can read day in and day out, oh, they're looking at Kushner now. Oh, they're talking to Ivanka now. Oh, they're talking. Just all these leaks to feed this insanity. I was just speaking to a friend uh, yesterday off air, a, a very good buddy of mine, just speaking to him about what's going on. And, and he came to me, and he's kind of a, he's a, a centrist who leans right, I'd say. He's a lean, right-leaning centrist, not a, not a staunch Republican, not a, you know, a, I guess he would say I'm a hardcore conservative. I think I'm just buck. I'm kind of a, an odd duck. But he's just like, you know, I'm really noticing something among my friends and among people. He went to a very fancy school. He's an Ivy League guy. I'm really noticing people, noticing something among people. That when it comes to Trump, they've really lost their minds and very educated, very uh, well-respected people within different communities have just lost it. And I think that's true of a lot of journalists. We discussed Trump derangement syndrome. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. And it's troubling to me the glee with which the media greets every departure now from this White House, because whether they like it or not, Trump is still the president. And. We want there to be very good people in roles like, well, National Security Council and National Security Advisor and all all that, all that, White House communications, all the things that need to get staffed at that level. Uh, but they're making it hard. It's part of the obstruction. It's part of the never Trumpism and hashtag resistance mentality. And uh, it's just we're going to suffer because of it. It's a shame. It really is. Um, by the way, I I am uh, going to try hard today to, to get us on a whole bunch of topics, including uh, China, Russia, Putin saying that there are invincible nuclear missiles that they have now. We'll get into some of that. We've got some special guests joining us today in the third hour of the show. But I, I want to make sure that we mix up the topics a bit a bit here and not just get on to, you know, the, the latest with the campaign against the NRA and gun control. But there was a really interesting, worthwhile series of articles I've read in the last uh, day or so on how when I talk about systemic law enforcement failure leading up to the shooting in Florida, that's clearly true. But when you drill down into what's going on in Broward County, and I saw this a week ago and I was trying to verify it, but when you drill down into what happened in Broward County, specifically with that sheriff's office and the policies in place, uh, it, it, it's a situation where I can tell you that with everything we know, FBI missing the tips, FBI missing the detailed explanation of the likelihood of Nicholas Cruz becoming a shooter, the dozens of calls to Nicholas Cruz's house by lo- for local law enforcement, and then the sheriff's deputies not entering the facility where the shooting was happening, the building of the shooting was happening at the very first opportunity. With all of that, I've said to you, I just don't know how it can get worse. You know what? It does get worse. Because when you look at what Broward County's sheriff... Sheriff Scott Israel did as a matter of policy in that county, not only is it alone a scandal, but it may in fact have had a direct and negative impact on the likelihood of the Nicholas Cruz shooting happening in the first place. I'll have to explain it a bit. And if you stay with me, I will. So uh, don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. A second issue we identified is that even if law enforcement, school administrators or family members believe that an individual poses the risk of committing an act of violence, they have very few options to prevent them from purchasing any gun or taking the guns away that they already have. 
Therefore, I intend to present a new law, perhaps in coordination with others that are working on it now, that will lead to the creation of gun violence restraining orders, something that will give law enforcement and close family members the option of obtaining a court order to prevent gun sales or remove guns from individuals who pose a threat. I have been a proponent of this from the beginning. I think that if we're going to try to take steps to mitigate the threat, right, to lessen the likelihood of a school shooting, gun violence restraining order is completely, assuming it's crafted properly and there is there is due process. And I knew this yesterday. Okay, Trump stumbled when he said we take the guns first. He got a little ahead of his skis, but they're obviously not going to do that. Uh, but a gun violence restraining order would be exactly what it sounds like. If somebody like Nicholas Cruz is saying, I'm going to go shoot people and I'm going to do bad things, uh, they, that could be presented to a judge. And then that individual could be both have his firearms taken from him or her, but it's pretty much always a him, right? Uh, or perhaps indefinitely banned from purchasing or getting a firearm. Uh, and there would be a legal process for this. You go in front of a judge and... You know, that would be that. Um, I think this is a I think this is a good idea. I would also note that, as some others have been pointing out, and we're going to get into this more right after the break, you know, threatening to kill somebody is actually a felony. And when we're looking at the law, a law enforcement not doing anything, I'm, I'm starting to wonder at what point his threats, his specific threats, Nicholas Cruz is to commit violence, commit acts of violence were really not actionable. Um, I, I wonder if that is really a fair assessment of what went on there, because I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that under different circumstances, if somebody had posted a, a threat and the FBI was called and they thought it was real, you'd be you'd be in a whole lot of trouble. Um, you'd be in a whole lot of trouble. Uh, so the gun violence restraining order is, I think, the best single policy change that I've heard of. Um, and, and as you know, I'm. I am skeptical of any of the actions that are really getting a lot of attention right now, preventing attacks, uh, preventing school shootings. I also think that we are in a in a frenzy and a hysteria right now about school shootings that overstates the threat. I'm just going to tell you, I think the threat is overstated right now. When when people are telling me that we need to put highly trained armed security personnel, I'm hearing this from a lot of folks in over 200,000 schools. Uh, I, I think that we've gone beyond what the threat, uh, what the threat is, and we are giving in to an intentional campaign of fear mongering by the left. And I don't like it. I disagree with it. Um, but there's another thing that I need to talk to you about, and that is the Broward County school policy when it comes to policing schools in Broward County and what the sheriff's department there got into and what it was up to there's been some very interesting research done on this and here's the short version looks like the broward county sheriff was even more responsible and more inept uh, more responsible for the disaster than we thought team early on in the uh, aftermath of the florida shooting i saw the first of what seemed to be somewhat conspiratorial postings about the actions of the Broward County Sheriff Department. Now, they weren't unbelievable claims out of hand, but it seemed a little a little murky, 
The citations, the sources weren't great. But it was a narrative that struck me as plausible. And it was certainly one also that you couldn't turn to the mainstream outlets to put much time into uncovering because it would take away from their primary narrative, which is that the NRA, which had nothing to do with the Florida shooting, NRA is the bad guy here. I've heard more about the NRA than Nicholas Cruz at this point, which is a a disgrace, but that is true. I've heard more in the media about the NRA than the actual uh, evildoer in this case who killed 17 people. Uh, But this storyline that I came across, and actually it was brought to my attention by some of you, and I I really do mean it when I say this is a a team effort. I've gotten so much great information, both personal information, some of you have been Some of you listening have been sources in the past, and some of you listening have pushed me to other sources and and places to get information that have been essential for this show. I have the advantage of not rushing on the air with just whatever everybody else is saying. I have the day to to research and think and pull things together. You know, if you just want the kind of bare bones, superficial headlines, there are plenty of places to give you that I spend all day, I, I, I marinate in my analysis, if you will, before I come on the air. And you are a very important part in that process, team. You help spice it up. And uh, sometimes you are absolutely essential with the information you bring to my attention. So don't ever feel like I, and I know a lot of you send me stuff on Facebook, you send me stuff on Twitter. I read, I read it all. I can't always respond, especially if you're welcome to write. Some of you write 1,200 words or more sometimes. That's fine. I'll read it. I just can't respond with 1,200 words or else Miss Molly is, she's not going to be, she's not going to wait for a ring. She's going to be sick of me. So um, here's the storyline, though, for Broward County Sheriff's Department. It's very, uh, it it is a stunning indictment of what was really going on there. The storyline was that the Sheriff's Department in, cooperation with the school system there had decided that it would be both serving the needs of social justice and serving their own parochial political needs, right? Their own near-term benefits and, and prospects if they were to find a way to make sure that there were less arrests of juveniles in Broward County. And that this became a policy that was agreed upon at the highest level. So at the level of uh, Sheriff Scott Israel himself and also brought together the uh, chief of the Fort Lauderdale Police Department, the superintendent of schools, you know, a whole, a whole bunch of different organizations here that decided that it would be best if they changed The way that policing was done when it came specifically to, that's right, juveniles, teenagers. We're going back and looking at what happened with Nicholas Cruz. Why didn't they take more action? Why wasn't more going on? Well, this is certainly one explanation for it. And like I said, I didn't, until I saw the sourcing, and now it's come out because people have dug into Miami Herald articles and other, uh, other newspaper articles that weren't putting together all these pieces, but were establishing some of the basic facts necessary for this theory to be true so you had sheriff israel's uh, department deciding that they would give a whole lot more citations 
and end the school-to-prison pipeline, you know, less arrests of juveniles, this would serve a whole bunch of different purposes. Less arrests looks good for the school district, because why do you have so many kids who are either not just engaged in truancy, but also engaged in illegal activity outside of the schools? So that doesn't look good. The schools, no surprise, are social justice factories. In These are public schools in Broward County, and the administrators and the various the superintendent and other school uh, officials wanted to be able to say that there were less arrests of students. The sheriff's department wanted to point to the drop in arrests and say, hold on a second, we're doing a great job here. See how many fewer arrests there are of juveniles in Broward County? This is, for those of you who remember the the incredible show, The Wire, I think written by David Simon, right, executive producer. I think that's who it was. Uh, the Wire's a great show. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. But this is a very similar scheme to what you see in The Wire, and it's true of a lot of different, a lot of different government bureaucracies, including law enforcement ones across the country. That the fastest way to show results is to change the data that gives you the results. Don't make don't make a county safer. Just change the way you count safety in the county. Oh, I would note the Obama administration did this on immigration. Oh, yeah, that's right. They just, oh, Obama was the deporter in chief. They were saying, oh, he's deporting so many people when, in fact, what they did. And this was a, a an active active policy. This was a decision they made. If you were caught at the border and turned around, they were going to count that as a deportation whereas previously it had been considered a denial of entry, or I forget what the specific terminology was. But they made it so that the numbers would look bigger. So they were doing more deportations than they actually were. Similar thing at work here. You have far too many juveniles engaged in crime. And so what they decided to do, and, you know, gang activity, we're talking about 16, 17-year-olds. What they decided to do was tell the sheriff's department that they're going to have a new approach to public safety and they're going to reduce the crime rate, the burglary rate. And the way to do that is by saying that kids stay in school. We're not going to arrest kids for violent behavior. We're just going to issue citations. And they're going to push this notion of citations. And then they would say, look, look at how what a great job we're doing in Broward County because of the drop in violent crime, when in reality they just were saying there were fewer arrests for burglary, larceny, assault, because sheriffs were being told, well, if seventeen-year-old you know punches somebody or robs a you know robs a liquor store or something, give him a citation, don't arrest him and process him. You can imagine what that did to the actual crimes in the in the county. That is not an that is not a good way to go about. Uh, not a good way to go about your law enforcement tactics. It has also come out that Sheriff Israel was using the department f- as a it's just a political machine, old school political machine. He was hiring people who were doing outreach, who were really just campaigning for him and creating deeper roots for him in the community for the purposes of, of reelection. Because uh, he's an elect, he's an elected official. I think people forget that that guy is an elected official, uh, sheriff, sheriff Israel. Uh, and now, when people start to see this, and 
there have been a bunch of different uh, uh, websites that have pulled this together. Sarah Rumpf over at Red State did. Ann Coulter's syndicated column this week is just on this issue. Her column is titled The School to Mass Murder Pipeline. Uh, and she's pointing it out, and it's there. I saw it last week, and I was trying to track it down. I actually reached out to a friend of mine, a couple of friends of mine in Florida, said, you know, do you know any journalists who could give me a little background on this or anyone who could add a little meat to the bones of these theories or of this theory? And, and sure enough, others caught, caught wind of this as well because this was out there. Uh, this was out there. And no one wanted to run with it right away because it seemed like, well, there's some you know, there's some elements and different stories that support this. But what ended up happening was a sheriff's department became a social justice political organization that was much more concerned with the stats and the perception of safety than the actual implementation of safety, particularly with regard to juveniles, teenage offenders. Why does that matter? Because Nicholas Cruz was a multiple, multiple time, dozens of calls, teenage offender. And it is it stands to me, at least perfectly reasonable to believe that if they had had a different approach to dealing with possibly violent teenagers in Broward County, there may have been a different outcome with Nicholas Cruz. This has been the theory all along. Now there's. Evidence to support it. Now there, there's a lot of uh, people have been going through the public documents and uh, looking for that. I mentioned, I think, Sarah Rumpf at Red State and Sheriff Israel was at one point bragging, bragging about telling his deputies that they were not to arrest juveniles. And he cited the, quote, dramatic drop in violent crime during his tenure and the issuing of thousands of civil citations rather than arrests for juveniles specifically. So how do you how do you make people think you're doing a good job in Broward County for Sheriff Israel? You change who you arrest. And that's all you have to do. You make the decision that you're going to release juveniles with just essentially a warning, right, with a citation instead. I mean, I guess citation, you got to pay or show up, but no more arrests. And, oh, you get to feel like a community leader and somebody who's socially justice aware because... What else is a part of this? Oh, a disproportionate impact of juvenile arrests on minorities in the Broward community. So you look like a social justice hero, you being Sheriff Israel, who was dropping the crime rate. Meanwhile, people were actually suffering. Crime was happening. And oh, by the way, Nicholas Cruz was able to have the cops called to his house dozens of times without any real action taken against him. And we are led to believe that there was nothing that law enforcement could have done in the situation that was better or that could have stopped it. So this, what started out as a conspiracy theory that was making its way around the Internet, some of my fellow uh, conservative analysts have looked at it, pulled together the data, and it's, it's true. It is true. There was cronyism. There was uh, politicization and ineptitude lies at the Broward County Sheriff's Department that were a, it was a systemic issue, systemic. So I just wanted to add that to our discussion of everything that happened in Florida. And uh, with that, I will take, uh, if you want to, if you got any thoughts, this, by the way, if any of you live down in Broward, I know we got a lot of Florida listeners, any of you live in Broward County, would really be curious to hear if you have any experience with this. 
or if you live in a jurisdiction where you think something similar has occurred, where they've changed the way they count statistics about arrests or the, the way or, or they change what they're willing to arrest people for. One of the big things that got me mad here in New York City recently was I found out that uh, Bill de Blasio, who you guys are anywhere in listening, anywhere in the country, unless maybe you're in, you're in Chicago, San Francisco or L.A., I feel like we have a worse mayor than you. Um, I think we have a worse mayor than you. The guy is a, a clown, but he made the decision that uh, told the police department here at NYPD that they're not going to arrest people for public urination anymore. I remember growing up and when the city in the bad old days, and it was really bad when I was growing up here. It was actually the worst in it ever was, was in the early 90s when I was a kind of young teenager. And people would just, you know, they would, you'd come home and there'd be somebody who was, you know, right on the front step. And it just would happen all the time. It was disgusting. It was a disgrace. And de Blasio was like, yeah, it's kind of mean to arrest people for, for you know, urinating on the street in public. So we're not going to do that anymore. This is what social justice gets you, my friends. And this is what the, the left believes is going to advance the common good. And in Broward, it was, uh, I think, disastrous. But if any of you listening have any ideas on that, let me know. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Going to be uh, switching up topics here in just a second, so stay with me. All right, team, let's take some calls. We have Matthew in Nebraska. Hey, Matthew. Hey, Buck. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast most of the time. I just wanted to mention that there's been a program in place since 2013 in a couple of different states, including Ohio and Colorado and a few others that have not been named, called the FASTER program. And it trains teachers to confront an armed attacker and trauma management to try and save as many kids' lives as possible. Yeah, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all fine with the training, and, and I actually like the idea of concealed carry for personnel in schools who, who want to have it. I just think the notion of a, of a uniformed defense force or some kind of official defense force for all schools based on the number of shootings and the number of, honestly, the, the number of shootings we're really talking about is not the, not the appropriate solution to the problem. Oh, I totally agree. I, I used to go to school 10 years ago with a school that had a resource officer. And we all knew where their office was and their rough schedule moving around the building. But having teachers who you don't know are armed are probably the best way to confront an attacker that slips through every hole like we had in Parkland. Yeah, and by the way, as, as soon as you have the first teacher you have who has an AD and sh- literally, shoots him, literally shoots himself in the foot, I mean, that'll be a national news story. And, and if you were to put thousands of teachers, you know, it, it's going to happen at some point. I always remember that video of, I forget, I think it was a... I forget. I think it was a DEA agent. It was on YouTube where he's showing a class his Glock. Do you know what I'm talking about? And oh yeah, there's been many instances where somebody who should know what they do completely messes up and puts a shot somewhere they weren't yeah. intending. Like that guy put one through his knee. That, that guy put one through his knee. I think in a classroom full of kids. It's, it's gotten millions and millions of views on YouTube, and they show it in gun safety class. I mean, I was in a gun safety class, and they showed that clip. So. Somebody told me that guy tried to sue, by the way. Tried to sue either the school or the news or somebody, but he didn't win. But, Matthew, yeah, if they want to get... But federal you know, federal air marshals, I don't believe a federal air marshal has actually foiled a terrorist or any kind of violent plot aboard an airplane since 9-11. I don't think that's happened. True, 
But right now, we have this program in place, and it's a charity. So, What's the name of the program again? The FASTER program. FASTER uh, you program. Can find, oh, I have to look at this one. Yeah. Yeah, FASTERSAVESLIVES.org. It's a 501c3, and it trains teachers. It's been in place after the Sandy Hook shooting. started out in Ohio. There's another version in Colorado, and they're even training teachers in other states. Look, I'm in favor. It's the same reason why, Matthew, you know, it's it's good to know how to defend yourself, with, you know, if you can, you know, with your hands. It's good to know some basic self-defense skills. Martial arts might be a little – that's one way of saying it, but it's, it's good to know how to defend yourself. It doesn't mean you have to get into fights, right? It's just a good thing to to know, and, and I think it instills a degree of, of confidence and makes somebody a little more, uh, you know, self-possessed when they're dealing with certain situations. And so I feel the same way about – if. Adults want to get active shooter training. If adults want to conceal carry in schools, I'm all fi- I'm for it and fine with it. Um, so if this program maybe could be expanded, that's perhaps a way to to get us to a, a better place in all this. Thank you for calling, Matthew from from Nebraska. Appreciate it. Yeah, uh, you know this is it's it's been pretty amazing to see how quickly this issue has uh, turned into well, how quickly all of a sudden we're being told that the solution is gun control. And I, I thought we had gotten to a place where we were past this, but now here we are. In fact, there's still, you know, efforts at uh, gun control and gun restrictions. But then also the the notion of a massive force, I don't think that's the answer either. Um, but not a lot of people want to hear the problem's not as bad as the meat is telling you, and that's what I'm telling you. The administration's going to be rolling out policy over the next three weeks, and it'll be very, very strong. Uh, I've also spoken with Jeff about bringing a lawsuit against some of these opioid companies. I mean, what they're doing and the way the distribution and you have people that go to the hospital with a broken arm and they come out and they're addicted. You know, as you know, we've been I think we've been involved more than any administration by far. President Trump earlier today at a White House summit on the opioid crisis. Welcome to our two of the Buck Sexton show, everyone. Uh, This is an issue that from the beginnings of this show, I've tried to uh, bring attention to. Uh, This is an issue that I have to say, given the focus and and uh, outrage and the national convulsion that we have just had because of the school shooting, I can't help but look at the lack of political momentum and media focus on this, which is also a life or death issue. And in terms of scale, it is not even close when we look at the the problem. Um, as I mentioned to you yesterday, the numbers are what they are. You have a, a, a few dozen uh, people killed in school shootings in recent years. For 2016, I think, or maybe it was 2017. No, 2017, the numbers are in. Over 63,000 people died of opioid over, uh, overdoses. 63,000. Uh, to put that in perspective, you had a, a total in 2016 of 17,250 people were murdered in the United States. So you lost it's all murders, all cities, 320 million people, 17,250 murders in the U.S. Uh 63,000 people died of opioid overdoses. Now, I know with opioids, people are, there's differences here, right? They're taking them, they're becoming addicted. But this is an urgent 
national crisis and it's affecting communities all across the country. And I think that this hits home, particularly with the president, uh, because of what he went through with his brother, who, as is well known, has been described by the president in some detail, uh, drank himself to death. And this is I just I see these. Look, I'm not saying we can't handle more than one issue, but look at the the ferocity of the media's demands for urgent action and sweeping change on gun control because of school shootings and the much more muted approach to dealing with a crisis that is a, is a true pandemic. We have a pandemic of addiction in this country right now, particularly to these opioids and these different uh, these different chemical compounds don't even have to necessarily grow it anymore. Uh, but you've got a perfect storm of a number of factors that have come together. Uh, one of them is that people have been given a lot of prescription drugs for pain. And the prescription uh, or the uh, pharmaceutical companies seem to be way too lax in their safeguards in selling enormous quantities of uh, a whole bunch of different drugs, Oxycontin and, and others, into certain parts of the country, certain pharmacies. And that's very, very bad. You have, as I've been telling you, the Mexican cartels, more violent than they've ever been. I was just telling a friend this the other day. He said, no way. I said, look it up. And he came back to me and said, you're right. Most murders ever in Mexico because of the cartels right now. Violence on a scale that is as bad as anything that we've seen in that country. Oh, and by the way, they're now vertically integrated as heroin growers and exporters and importers. I mean, they're importing into the United States, exporting it from Mexico. And they're growing it. In If you look at a, a map of Mexico, there's highlands that kind of form a, a, a backbone, a spine of the country, up, starting up in the uh, Durango and Sinaloa area, Sinaloa highlands, and then you go all the way down, and they can grow poppy up there, and they do. They're growing heroin now. I mean, they don't grow heroin. Right? Heroin is a process that you, you get it from the, the paste from the poppy plant. Uh, but they're doing that now in Mexico. It used to have to come all the way from South Asia for the most part. Then you've also got large chemical factories, illegal ones, operating in Mexico and in China. And they can bring pills into the U.S. that are incredibly addictive, very, very powerful, fentanyl and others. These uh, different chemical compounds that have... In, that have Addictive properties that are just, it is very, very hard to, to break. I mean, when you read the descriptions, I have to give, uh, so I think it was CNN, might have been the New York Times, was writing just about what addicts are like. What the It was profiles of different opioid addicts, and they are generally functioning people. We have this notion in the country, and I think that's part of why the, the, the media is not really focused on this issue, and you, know, you think about all oh, the there were a lot of stories, stories about the crack epidemic, stories about the AIDS epidemic. I mean, when, a, when there's a national crisis like this, usually beca- because it is both important and attention grabbing, media runs with it. I, I see very little coverage of opioids. It, it, it hasn't yet been addressed as something that needs a, a, a really a cultural shift and the mobilization of communities across the country to deal with it. And I, I'm not comparing to say that one is important and one isn't or something, but you look at the the uh, the outpouring from both sides of the aisle to deal with school shootings. Then you look at 
the opioid crisis. Government's not going to solve the opioid crisis, folks. Government's also not going to solve school shootings. But it's this is from us. This is at our level. And I've I've been around people. I've seen people in my life even. You know, growing up in New York City, there were a lot of drugs here. In fact, one of the things I, I think that always surprises, it certainly surprised some of my my peers at Langley at the CIA, um, one of the things that always surprised them was that when I tell them stories about, and look, I, I had a very loving, supportive family, I had great parents, I went to a, a great Jesuit school here and everything, but just being in the city and be, you know, going, going, we used to go out very young age here, people had fake IDs. I think back to this now and it seems crazy, but everyone starting around 14 or 15 would try to get a fake ID and they're going to bars and there were nightclubs that we would go to here in New York. I mean, not me, obviously, because I was not 21 yet, but yeah, maybe. Uh, but you, you're just around, and people started doing drugs at a very young age. I think one of the things that's surprising for some of my my government friends is when I just they say, "Well, how'd you get a how'd you get a clearance?" You know, how, you and I said, "I just never got mixed up in any of that stuff. It just never was for me." You know, I had a a a a big brother to look out for me and a little brother and sister that I wanted to be proud of me and, and parents that, I, you know, in the same, the, that I felt the same about. And it just never. And I, I had friends who went to rehab. I knew people very well who went to rehab for serious drug addiction. And I'm glad that they got help. But some of them were never really the same afterwards. I was just speaking to a dear friend of mine a few weeks ago. Uh, we actually met up and had had dinner for the first time in a while. A guy I've known for decades at this point, and uh, we we got into a lot of a lot of tr- a lot of fun trouble together back in the day. You know, we were kind of partners in uh, in growing up together here in the city. And he said that we saw he saw another friend recently on the street who we both knew and has been just been through it, addicted to the worst, addicted to the worst stuff. And, and by the way, a, a privileged kid. You know, grew up uh, with a life of privilege here in the city, and uh, but just had the had m- multiple trips into rehab, and he said he saw him, and they were really old friends, and he pretended not to see him, meaning the guy who'd been to rehab, pretended not to see him, sped up and, and just walked past him and walked away. He said he couldn't even bring himself to be mad at him because he knew that he just it's just easier it's easier not to get into it. You know, how are you doing? Oh, you know, I've you know, I'm I'm clean for X amount of days, and you know, because we all know, we all know. I think I might have been mentioned before in the show. I I had two friends growing up, both of whom died of drug overdoses. Uh, one of whom was actually a very very close friend of mine uh, when I was on the you know very young on the younger side. Um, now they were prescription drug overdoses. I don't you know, and then you get into. Yeah, was was it just an? You of course in these situations you just respect the family's wishes and try to support them, and you know you don't ask questions, right? But I knew that both of them died of drug overdoses, uh, and two people I knew I knew well and spent a lot of time with, and also by the way, very very privileged people here in the city, and uh, I just always stayed away from that stuff. I never healed me, but I, I'm telling you these stories just because I've I've seen it, I've seen what it does to people. I knew young women. I knew uh, my peers when I was in high school, 15, 16 years old, going to rehab for cocaine. That was a big one. Um, Some others would go for alcohol, but cocaine was particularly a big issue when I was growing up in the city. And, you know, that's a dangerous drug, terribly addictive, ruins lives. What we're seeing now 
is a proliferation of these incredibly potent painkillers that are even more addictive and more available and can come in all different kinds of forms. And you got the cart. You, you can either get it from the cartels, which is coming to you from a street dealer. Right. Or you have a, an unethical doctor who's prescribing you too many painkillers and not paying attention. Or maybe just a doctor who doesn't really, you know, people are doctor shopping or the pharmacist is not paying attention. There are all these different ways to get this right. That's that's part of it, too. People talk about gateway drugs. Well, if you're on pain medication for your back and it's an opioid, it is a, it is a gateway drug to then getting fentanyl from because you become addicted. I mean, I actually don't believe that marijuana is a gateway drug to and I trust me, I more than I feel like more than half the people I knew growing up in, in New York City. I mean, I want to say more like three quarters of them smoked marijuana way, way less than that did anything else in terms of drugs. I mean, I couldn't give you a percentage, but. So the notion of it being a gateway, I've always thought was kind of a falsehood. But addiction is so debilitating and destructive, and the numbers don't lie. 63,000 people died. 63,000 of our fellow Americans. Think of the holes that have been left in those families. These are sons and daughters and mothers and fathers. And I just don't get any sense of the, the urgency of national action from the opinion makers i give trump credit i think trump is really looking at this and trying to tackle this and i do believe it's because he has a personal connection to addiction not to somebody who's been affected but i don't know maybe he knows people have been affected by opioids too but for my own life knowing some folks who have uh, dealt with uh, addiction to particularly to illegal substances i mean you know alcohol is is debilitating too but it is it is tough it is uh it is life shattering for a lot of a lot of people. It destroys families, destroys careers, and this is if we're going to start having a national conversation about taking positive action at the most local level, all the way up to the top of government. I feel like this should be the priority. Um, it's only going to get worse, by the way, unless we start finding ways to address it and deal with it. And and I, I have I have theories, by the way, that aren't really based in the. This is going to sound bad, like based on the science is all I'm coming up with with quackery here. No, but I, I have my own inclinations about why the opioid epidemic has gotten so bad. Why a lot of you listening. I know many of you across the country listening to the show right now are saying, well, I know somebody who's been affected by it. You might know many people have been affected by it. Um, I think it's because of the uh, way that we approach our day-to-day lives now and pushing through pain and dealing with, and people are more, are, are want to be active longer. People uh, feel like they should be able to. And I, and I certainly encourage that, right? You want to be as physically active as you can, as long as you can, but you get nagging injuries, back pain, a lot of physical pain actually comes from stress and from lifestyle issues that are just a part of what it is to be grinding it out, trying to pay bills, trying to support a family, trying to keep the mortgage paid, all of that. Right. There are physical manifestations of that pain. And if you can escape it with a pill, that becomes very potent. That's hard to that's hard to uh, pass up for a lot of people. And it also affects different. It affects people differently, meaning for some and they're starting to to look at the genetics of this more. They're starting to look at the biochemistry uh, much more rigorously. Some people. Yeah. I mean, I remember I had a. It's going to sound like ridiculous, but a long time ago I had, the first time I was ever given real prescription painkillers was because I was doing some cliff jumping and managed to give myself an ear infection. 
which when you're an adult sounds sounds an ear infection is maddeningly painful if it gets into your inner ear it's terrible it's the worst it literally the guy the doc had to give me painkillers i took it i remember feeling kind of you know ooh, a little woozy it's kind of you know oh, i remember and i didn't have any inclination afterwards to you know oh i i remember i had leftovers and i just you know i threw them out right who cares for some people, they're finding now that their biochemistry, their actual, the way that their brain functions is that once they take it, it it's like this is all that they, this is all that they want. They want to re, they want to achieve that feeling again. And then once they get in that cycle on opioids and they try to withdraw, opioid withdrawal is described by people in a lot of different ways, but the, the most common way is think of the worst flu you've ever had and multiply it by a hundred. And that's what that's what opioid withdrawal feels like. And that's why people make the terrible decisions they do once they become addicted. But this is a national this is a true national crisis. People are dying in vast numbers, many more than are dying from car accidents, many more than are dying from any kind of violence, not just gun violence, hammers and sharp objects, too. And yet, you know, you're not seeing the, the, the pundit class. Because you know what, on this one. This is just about us. It's harder for them to find a, a bad guy. You know, there's, there's, no, there's no NRA for the left to beat up on when it comes to opioids. I mean, I guess maybe they're trying to make it the pharmaceutical industry. But here's the thing. You beat up on, the pharma, on, on big pharma too much. Guess what? People need pain pills too, right? I've, I've had family members who have been through surgeries recently. You're going to need pain pills sometimes. So it's not, not as easy as just, oh, the big bad pharma is the, the problem that we have here. So... I just think this issue deserves a lot more, uh, not just attention, right? That's one part of it, but action. We've, we've spent a couple of weeks here as a country convulsed by a discussion over how to stop uh, terrible murders that should never happen, but are in the dozens. And we've spent far too little of our time also thinking about how we can stop murders that are in the tens of thousands, over 63,000 last year at a quick break here we'll be right back some countries have a very very tough penalty the ultimate penalty and by the way they have much less of a drug problem than we do so we're going to have to be very strong on penalties hopefully we can do some litigation against the the opioid companies i think it's very important because a lot of states are doing it but i keep saying if the states are doing it why isn't the federal government doing it I think the president's uh, got an interesting point whenever he talks about more concerted action on opioids. I don't think that currently any there's I think U.S. law was pretty clear that you can only be killed if you kill someone, meaning you can only be put to death if you cause if you cause death, um, except for treason. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. I think those are the I think the only crime you can be put to death for that does not involve that does not involve killing somebody or you being responsible for someone's death is treason. I think that's correct. John in Whitesboro, New York. Hey, what's up, John? I'll be real quick. I, I, I used to work as a transit cop, and you can't get a bigger, in New York City, and you can't get a bigger urinal than the subway system. And I, 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 I caught more females urinating than guys, but trust me, I would never lock anybody up for that. I, at, at worst, or I, I'd throw them off the subway system. But I was telling your screener that I actually one time got urinated on on the J train at Lorimer Avenue, and uh, I guess that's like like two stops away from the Williamsburg Bridge. Were you in uniform? 
Yeah, I was hiding in a room looking for fair beaters. Two guys came through. One went up, this, uh, up onto the platform, and the other was on the mezzanine. So I stopped the mezzanine guy. I, 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 he said he wanted to use the phone, so I let him go. I, I started going upstairs, and you know how, like, on the elevated lines, there's, like, a landing halfway up? Yeah. As soon as I got to the landing, I felt something hit my hat. So I stopped, you know, because I was wondering what it was, and then all of a sudden I got poured on by urine. So I continued going up the stairs and around, like, you know, when you get up to the platform, you can walk around. And the guy was in the corner there at the, at the, you know, the thing that goes around the stairway, and he was urinating. And it, it came down on me, and he was drunk and stuff. But, you know, I, I think I wrote him a summons, but he didn't have good ID. He was drunk. But I, I tell me, I, 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 he, he got smacked around a little bit, and I threw him off the subway station. <laughs> but no one would lock you up for that buck. <laughs> okay, John. Officer John, thank you. <laughs> I got nothing, man. I got nothing after that. I, you know what? I needed. I actually really needed that call right there. <laughs> Thank you, Officer John. Thanks. All right, everybody. I'll be right back. We should be looking for bipartisan solutions to revise the FISA process so that what happened to President Trump never happens to a future American president. So I went looking for solutions, and I found that in 2013, the gentleman from California, the ranking member of the Intelligence Committee, wanted to give the President of the United States the power to appoint FISA judges. He argued that then judges would be more ideologically diverse. They'd come from different areas in the United States, and they would be subject to Senate confirmation. Today, I filed that legislation, and I would encourage the gentleman from California to join me as a co-sponsor so that we could advance bipartisan legislation. Who wants to guess whether Schiff joined in that legislation? Who wants to guess? The answer, of course, you already know. Look, this is, this is a, a process that I think, unfortunately, will go out with a whimper and not a bang, meaning there's not going to be any day where I can come on the show and say, see, it's all over. We have our answers. And part of the problem here is that while some who are opponents of the administration pretend that that's the only thing that will, that's the only thing they want. They, they want the truth, just the truth, nothing but the truth. Uh, they know that every day that this goes on is a day that slows down the administration from building a wall, slows down the administration from trying to help with the economy. Uh, allows things like this to go unchallenged. And, of course, I'll just close with talking about the, the GOP tax scam. Every day that goes by, we see more evidence that it is exactly that, a tax scam. We continue to put out the truth on the tax scams, massive giveaways to corporations and the wealthy and its consequences for workers, seniors, and families. Uh, every day we see more corporations announcing stock buybacks to enrich their executives and investors instead of increasing the wages on an ongoing basis of workers. I see. So now it has to be a wage increase, a, a bonus of $1,000 to employees from all these different companies. That's crumbs. But it needs to be a, a wage increase for Nancy Pelosi to be happy. Nancy Pelosi is an economic illiterate. She has no idea what she's talking about. And what's worse in many ways, she does not care. Uh, she has no policy to put forward that would improve the economic situation of workers. But she knows that bashing Trump, bashing this administration is good politics for her base. And that is, in fact, what she is set on doing. But you'd think that maybe we could spend more time explaining to the American people how Nancy Pelosi does not have. Well, she doesn't have a conceptual understanding of how wages would go up. So you start with that. Uh, but also 
get into why it matters that companies will have more cash, what that will do for hiring. But no, instead of being able to engage there, I mean, we can, right? I just did. But instead of that being a focus of the narrative, it is so much more on what the latest in the Mueller probe is. I am so sick and tired of this Mueller probe. I'm seeing now that there's a breaking news, if you want to call it that, that there will be more indictments of Russians. Okay, great. What's that going to do? These are Russians who will never stand trial. These are Russians who don't give a crap what Mueller says or thinks or does, or the, the DOJ for that matter. And this time around, it may have to do with the theft of Hillary's emails is what I'm being told. That's what I'm well, that's what I'm reading. I, should, I mean, uh, so we'll see a hacking scheme to get at her emails. But, you know, if it's not that it's there's some other bit of leakage from the Mueller probe. So much leaking. It's really hard to feel like there's political integrity in this. And I would also note there was an article written by a former uh, FBI agent who I think it was uh, Scarlet is still red or, or something like that was the title where you were saying that Mueller has a long history of being one of these guys who in internal investigations, even at the FBI would take the truth to an extreme, meaning that even if something was not particularly material or if it could be said that you did not give the most specific version of the truth possible, he would use that for leverage over people in investigations. I think we're certainly seeing that. Democrats are playing games. They're using the bureaucratic machinery of the DOJ as a weapon against their ideological opponents. That's what is happening. Uh, and when they're not just grinding people through that process, they are also letting Americans believe, because that's the whole purpose of these stories, that you know, Jer- that Jared Kushner took bribes. That, that's the latest one, last 24 hours. Uh, he got loans because he met with the CEO of some companies and Kushner got loans. And, you know, they're gonna, and Oh, and also uh, CNN was running that uh, Ivanka's international business transactions are under investigation. Another leak. More leaks all the time. Do you think that they'll run stories at CNN when nothing comes of that investigation? When there are no charges and no no malfeasance found when they look into these transactions? I saw yesterday they're going into Trump's finances now. I'm familiar with the way these with these things actually work. And this is what everyone needs to remember. If they want to get you bad enough and they have enough leeway and they have the resources, they'll get you. They'll find something. People always think, you know, there's actually a, a pretty interesting book. I think it's written by Harvey, I can't remember if his name is Silverstein or Silvergate. Uh, I think it's Harvey Silvergate. Um, three felonies a day. And it's just about how many Americans who, because most people don't go to law school and don't really have a detailed understanding of criminal law and also the justice system. Like once you, once they start poking around and asking questions, as we know, that becomes its own problem. The people are committing Harvey Silvergate. Yeah. <sighs> Buck human Google over here. Uh, I know I should never. I'm going to make so many mistakes tomorrow or probably in the next hour. But <laughs> Thank you, John. I deserve that. I deserve that. That was I earned that one. Um, anyway, the the uh, the book, though, is about the accidental felonies that people commit that are look, they're more minor stuff. But 
you know, uh, you know, misuse of a computer program or exceeding your authority on a work computer. These are all like felonies that people could theoretically be charged for. They have no idea. No idea. Don't even get me started on your taxes. And that's the way that they've been going after people for a long time. That was the old Clinton. That was the old Clinton move, right? Just get give somebody a real thorough audit. And as you know, if you've ever gone through that process, you've done nothing wrong. It's not like you get a prize at the end. You don't even get a high five from the IRS afterwards. Like, oh, wow, you're as, you're as clean as clean can be. It's like, yeah, on to, on to the next, you know, poor soul. On to the next person who gets to deal with our questioning and investigations and has their freedom and their property at risk. Well, we get paid, you know, we, the bureaucracy, get paid to show up no matter what. There you go. Breaking news at CNN. I see it right now. Kushner's business interest got millions in loans after White House meetings. Well, did he did he do something? Did he violate ethics or not? Because they're they're implying that he violated ethics and that he took a bribe. If he did, that's really bad, and he should be in trouble. But you know what? I'm willing to bet. I, I'm willing to bet that no, he didn't. And when they find that out, they will not care. They will not cover that. They just keep reminding us of who is under investigation and what they are using this to sully individuals in the administration and as a form of taking out. They're ideological opponents. That's what this all is. This is why I just I just don't have any respect for the Mueller probe anymore. I, I don't want to hear it. You know, they have given me nothing so far other than, you know, low level Mickey Mouse garbage to work with in terms of their prosecutions. And, oh, OK, they're going after Man. We didn't need a special counsel to go after Manafort's tax returns, folks. Any prosecutor could have done that, right? We could have brought our friend Andy McCarthy out of retirement. He probably could have figured out the the Manafort situation about five minutes in his pajamas. It's not that hard. You got to pull the guy's bank records, and you know that that's it. That's all she wrote. So why do we have a special counsel? Why was it needed? The only reason we have a special counsel is because the media demanded one because of what Trump said in an interview with Lester Holt after firing James Comey. Because they said that the Justice Department under this president could not be trusted to operate as it as it does. And now we're seeing that, well, hold on a second. They're just this is operating as some some rogue entity that's running around wrapping people up for all kinds of things. This guy in what was it in London who's like the married the daughter of a Russian oligarch or is he the son of a Russian? Oligarch? I forget. But yeah, he was he got nailed for lying to the FBI about a meeting five years ago or something we're supposed to feel safer and better at night because of this this is just it's just so frustrating folks because look we started out the hour talking about the a very real problem that doesn't just have lives in the balance it's costing lives every single day and and i just keep repeating that number sixty-three thousand dead last year that's a huge number and People would rather bog the president down and, and all of his top advisors in minutia and garbage and nonsense than make some allowance for, OK, I mean, the guy, this is the president. This is the presidency. Maybe we should stop trying to uh, stop trying to sabotage its functions because we don't like where it stands on some issues. It's another part of, of, of the whole Trump derangement situation. What has Trump done that really upsets these people so much? I think that's important. You have to remind yourself. You have to ask that question. What has Trump done that makes them hate him so much? You know, they really were that excited about Hillary? Yes, hello. 
I mean, they really were just so set on a Hillary Clinton presidency. I, I find that hard to believe. And maybe they were so set on it, but that's what makes them so angry. They're so angry about the tax cut, like Nancy Nancy Pelosi. Oh, it's a corporate giveaway. It's just for the fat cats. You know, I mean, talk about the pot calling the kettle black, right? Nancy Pelosi's husband's worth like fifty million. So, what has he done that makes them so mad? The way that he speaks, the way that he is. The fact that he's not a social justice warrior, I guess, yeah, I guess so. That is, in fact, what is so bothersome to them. And that he's a threat to their power and to their stranglehold over the national narrative. The fact that he doesn't play by their rules, the fact that he calls them out, he slaps them around and he wins. Because there's no there's nothing that he has done so far that I can look at and say, wow, that's really He's going to really just step in it with the liberals on that one. (laughs) It's it's tone that they hate so much. It's style. It's not the substance of the policies that have been implemented. Maybe eventually. I mean, the idea of a wall, I know, keeps liberals up at night, makes them cry, makes them sad. Uh, Well, you know, we'll see. I mean, this Mueller thing, though, get ready for it with the Russian, the indictments of uh, more Russians. It just feeds right in. They're going to be throwing a party over at CNN on that one. It just feeds in the narrative. Oh, my gosh, the election conspiracy. Election conspiracy. You'll you'll note that there are some uh, very prominent left-wing reporters with actual time on the ground in Russia know what they're talking about. And they're not appearing on these big networks because other ones were saying, okay, yeah, so they, they did this stuff. But this is this is like at the kiddie table. I mean, this is nonsense. Some social media maneuvering. Is information warfare? I mean, sock puppets and... Ugh. People have lost it, folks. They've lost it. All right, we got, we've got a lot more. Next hour, uh, we are going to be joined by our friend Gordon Chang to talk about the China tariff situation on steel and aluminum and also just what we should be prepared for when deal, in dealing with China going forward here. This could be uh, some rocky times ahead. I'll talk to you about the invincible... Invincible! They're invincible... The invincible missiles that Vladimir Putin says that he has that can get past our radar and, you know, they can't just nuke us now. They can nuke us into oblivion or something. I don't know. Well, I do know. I'll talk to you about it. And uh, also we'll be joined by our our friends from Black Rifle Coffee. They're just going to tell us a bit of the, the, they've got a, the company history is fascinating. They've got some really cool stories. I'm excited to ask them about it. And then we got some roll call coming. So we've got quite a little show left for you, folks. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. I kind of like Orrin Hatch a little bit more now. Uh, He is quoted here on the Hill as saying, quote, Obamacare supporters are the stupidest, dumbass people he's ever met. (laughs) Uh, I like it. That's pretty funny. He later had a spokesperson say he said it in chess, blah, blah, but he said it. He said at the uh, American Enterprise Institute, the stupidest, dumbass people. Nice. Well, we'll play it, Orrin Hatch. Hat tip to Orrin Hatch on that one. It's pretty funny. Uh, all right. Joe in Wilmington, Delaware. Hey, Joe. Fuck, I'm a huge fan. Thank you, sir. This, uh, this tragedy that happened in Florida, it, it, you know, it, it says a lot about Republican leadership as well. Uh, for whatever reason... They just allow the Democrats to control the narrative. I mean, can you believe that instead of the story being Broward County Sheriff's Department doesn't protect 
the community from from people like this when when they had because the narrative is that it's the NRA's fault. I mean, it's just it's illogical in every sense of the way. And true Republicans like myself, we're sick and tired of some Republican leaders just running with their heads between their tails. We're ready to fight for our message. It's you know when you have this sheriff that was told. In his department, it was told numerous of times that there was problems. When you had the FBI notified, but yet the storyline is going to be the NRA. And, you know, Buck, I expect young kids to react emotionally. They're, they're, they're high school kids. They're traumatized. But can somebody in the Republican community have the guts to really tell them what the heck's going on? I mean, you can be empathetic. And, yeah, this... This kid was a troubled kid. He gave every warning sign imaginable. It could have been a car he drove into the school. It could have been a bomb. The, the crime isn't the weapon. The crime is that your community, your sheriff's department, was warned numerous times and they did nothing to protect the public. That's what the true storyline is. Well, I, look, I, I agree that they're, they're – well, I agree with what you're saying here. And, Joe, thank you very much for calling in, buddy. I thank you for your kind words about, about the show as well. Look, Joe's totally right. I mean, a lot of Republicans just started running scared on this right away. You know, they've, uh, they've just been trying to appease the, appease the rage mob, and that is never going to be successful. It's never a good idea. Daniel in Arkansas. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Buck. What's going on, dude? Shield time. Not much. Shield time, my friend. I got a two-part question for you. I'm going to make it quick, and then I'm going to dump the line so I can listen to you over the radio. Roger that, sir. As far as I'm, I know, the president can only be impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors if he commits said high crimes and misdemeanors while he's president of the United States. So if they haven't found anything yet, unless they're a fortune teller, they, they can't charge him with anything. Uh, I think high, I mean, is, high crimes and misdemeanors are, it's a pretty broad range that even would include, some people say, argue would include even non-criminal activity, um, so, or, or low-level criminal activity, I should say, and it's really up to the Congress. <laughs> that's, that's the, it's a political, it's much more a political tool than it is a uh, criminal justice tool, Daniel, so we'll see. And you want to ask if he pardoned everybody in the Russia investigation? Because we're going to run a break here in a second. Um, he could. There's nothing. The, yeah, the president's I mean, pardon he, power he, is basically he, absolute, so he could pardon anyone. If he just did a blanket pardon for anyone that's on their list that they're going to call up, wouldn't they just have to end it? Uh, no, I don't think he, he. That's different than shutting down the investigation. But I'd have to think about that a little bit. But look, I'm I'm of the mind that he should pardon General Flynn. So I'll just go out there and say it. Daniel, thank you for your call from Arkansas, my friend. I appreciate it. We're going to talk about Russian nukes and Chinese trade war. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. 
After the United States withdrew from the ABM Treaty unilaterally, we've been working hard to create new promising weaponry systems, and this enabled us to make a big step forward, creating new strategic arms. We have developed a new generation of missiles. Namely, currently, the Defense Ministry works together with the defense companies in the space industry, and they're testing a new missile system that uses a heavy ICBM. It's much scarier when Putin's saying it, not through a translator, but that was the premier of Russia talking, or his translator telling us what he's saying, but he was talking about the announcement today from Russia, from uh, the official account of the president and the various news agencies there that they have developed a new series of nuclear weapons, including an undersea drone that has nuclear capability and also a a nuclear device that can a a missile that can go basically through our radar without us being able to do anything about it. That's what they're claiming. This is being taken by a lot of folks who watch Russia closely uh, with a grain of salt. Uh, Putin. Oh, there we go. Maybe, you know, the hunt for Red October does come to mind with all of this. But the uh, the realities here are this doesn't change the nuclear threat to the United States from Russia. And it doesn't change that we would annihilate Russia in event of any kind of nuclear strike. We're still in the same place. Does, does anyone really think if Russia fired all of its nukes at us, we'd be able to shoot them all down? No, of course not. Um, same thing is true of Russia. If we fired all our stuff, they couldn't shoot them all down either. So this is a bit of bluster, a bit of chest thumping from Putin. Um, and it is in part, at least, I think, driven by the fact that, one, he's got his re-election coming up in a few weeks. The Russian president is expected to win, which is not surprising. Uh, but it's important for him, for domestic political reasons, to go out there and say that he's got invincible missiles. He is invincible. Uh, so that's what this is, at least in part, a reflection of right now. That That's why he's running around talking about his invincible missiles. That can get past our radar and do all this stuff. Um, but this doesn't change our strategic calculation about nukes, and it also doesn't change that Russia's economy is smaller than Canada's. Okay, R- Russia is—we're going to be talking about China in a few minutes. China's scary long term. China's a problem, folks. Not one that has any easy answers, and not one that we can ignore. Russia is a country with—it's a very big military with a very, or at least a very powerful military with a medium. To small-ish economy, especially given the size of the country, its natural resources, and everything else. So this is not something to be overly alarmed about. Uh, seeing people, the, the immediate hot takes whenever Putin says anything now is, oh, is Trump going to condemn it? Well, why should Trump condemn it when it's not as big of an issue as Putin is claiming, right? Well, what's the point of that? Why antagonize the Russian premier when he's talking about a threat that's not even as big of a threat as he is trying to lead us uh, lead us into thinking. So that's part. Of, oh, but but there's the election in Russia. There's also what happened. And if you listen to the show, you know in detail what happened some weeks ago in Syria, where Russian paramilitaries fighting alongside the Assad regime 
went after a Kurdish base in eastern Syria, and the Kurds called in uh, artillery and airstrikes, and and it was a it was a bloodbath. They lost estimates are in in the couple of hundreds actually um, for the losses, and it's a question of how many were Syrians versus how many were Russians, but. That didn't that didn't sit well with the Russian government, even though they were te- they were paramilitaries, they were contractors working for Assad, not Russian uniform military. But there are Russian military uh, folks in Syria as well. And I mentioned, I think it was yesterday that we have our fighter planes coming into very close contact with their fighter planes in a way that some are saying is far too close for comfort and could lead to the shoot down of either a U.S. or Russian plane, which would spiral us into a crisis and a minimum, a diplomatic, if not military crisis very quickly. So look, the the Russians, they're they're talking about this this technology that's out there that people have been discussing for some time. Hyper hypersonic glide vehicles, uh, which go, I think, five times the speed of sound. And I could be wrong about that. And essentially would allow the Russians to fire a missile and hit anywhere in the world within a few hours. Now, the the truth is that the Russians can already pretty much hit anywhere in the world in a few hours. So, Or at least they can hit anywhere in the world with their missiles, not necessarily as fast. They can't do it at the speed of these um, hypersonic uh, glide vehicles, which I've been reading up on. I have to tell you, I this is where I'm always very honest with you. I'm a a jihadist and car bombs student, you know, I am not a student of advanced missile defense. And that that is really a sub that is really a specialty within the overall discipline of military and national security analysis. And this is true you know, if you're at the Pentagon, these places, the people that are the missile people are not the people that are the counterinsurgency and counterterrorism people. Generally, it's just there's not a, there's not as much and not enough crossover on it. But I. I've uh, done research on it and wanted to just bring you up to speed on what's going on with this whole Russia situation. Because the truth is that this is not anything to be overly concerned about. People are talking about the various treaties that this may have implications for. But the Russians have already violated the uh, sort of the medium range missile treaty that we have with them, the intermediate range nuclear treaty and there's the START treaty, which has been updated a couple times. There, I think there's an update that's supposed to happen at some point in the pretty near future. Uh, ultimately, we have got deterrence with them. This may, in fact, be I mean, the nuclear deterrent is still in place. And this could be a ploy by the Russians to force us to the negotiating table to just talk about other things, too. Right. They're going to be a little more belligerent with the rhetoric on missiles so that we come and talk to them more about what's going on in with Syria, with Ukraine, with the sanctions. They, they really do want sanctions uh, gone. And we will see how that works out for them. But I wouldn't worry about, about Putin and his invincible missiles. Uh, we still sleep soundly, despite the fact that there are more countries now that have missiles, uh, nuclear missiles and nuclear capabilities than did uh, decades ago, and the Russians still have a whole lot of nukes. The Chinese have nukes. There's plenty of countries out there right now that we just assume they won't step out of line because they know that the response from us would be annihilation.
so we're going to get Gordon Chang joining us here in a second. He's going to weigh in on the tariffs in the steel industry, uh, specifically that will deal with China um, and some other aspects of U.S.-China foreign policy. So a lot of national security this hour, hour three of the Buck Sexton Show. And then later on, we'll be joined by our friends from Black Rifle, the CEO and uh, vice president. Um, and that's where we're heading. So stay with me. Big news about China coming in today, and we want to talk to Gordon Chang about it. He is the author of The Coming Collapse of China and a Daily Beast columnist. Gordon, great to have you. Thank you so much, Buck. Uh, So first, let's talk a bit about the tariffs, because that's getting a lot of attention because it has, people are saying, caused quite a dip in the stock market for the day, but it also could be a harbinger of some economic troubles to come. What do you make of this? Is this long overdue? Are we playing high stakes poker we could lose? What do you think of the Trump move? Probably all of the above. Um, it's, we have to remember that this was these tariffs are imposed under the authority of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. This is a national security measure. Um, these tariffs are set at levels so that the aluminum industry and the steel industry can be self-sustaining because we need to make sure that we've got a steel and aluminum industry uh, that can supply defense needs. So that's important for us, apart from trade. You know, when it comes to trade, we don't know the d- details. It's going to take about a week for the administration to negotiate with other countries and to come up with final rules, and we'll just have to see how it goes. But I suspect that the harshest rules will be applied against China because China has been extremely predatory in flooding the world with excess steel and aluminum. They've been subsidizing producers in order to put our producers out of business. We've got to do something. The Chinese may huff and puff, but we've got to remember that we're the trade deficit country. Last year, we had a $475 billion trade, merchandise trade deficit with China. That $475 billion, by the way, was 88.8% of China's overall trade surplus. We've got an enormous amount of leverage here. And what do you think the next moves on the Trump team should be, Gordon, with regard to, to dealing with China? I mean, Trump has been promising, and this goes all the way back to the campaign, that he would get fair and smart trade with China. From your estimation, what would that mean? And how would that look? Well, I think the first thing it would mean is that we've first we've got to go against their uh, theft of U.S. intellectual property. Uh, the Chinese steal an estimated uh, 300 to 600 billion dollars a year in U.S. IP. We've got to put a stop to that. And so, uh, Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, has now got an ongoing investigation uh, pursuant to Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974. We need to impose some stiff penalties to get the Chinese to stop this. Also, we know that China's been engaged in increasingly predatory moves to close off their market, especially with their Made in China 2025 initiative. They've identified 10 sectors that they want Chinese companies to dominate. And, you know, they're closing off their markets through various means. Uh, We can't allow this to continue. They can't be allowed to continue to close their market while our market is open. That just doesn't work. What do you think the responses will be of the Chinese government to these actions by the Trump administration? Well, you know, they will um, they'll try to, for instance, um, close off their markets even further to U.S. agricultural products. Sorghum has been mentioned in this regard. But um, with the balance of trade, um, you know, they could hurt us a little bit. We could hurt them a lot. 
Um, we, we actually, should, as Americans, should know this because in the world's um, great trade war in the 1930s, the country that got hurt the most was us because we were the world's trade surplus country. Now it's China's turn to be the trade surplus country. So we shouldn't be afraid of trade friction. I'm not welcoming it, but I am saying that we've got to protect ourselves and we've got to insist on China's adherence to trade bargains that it has made. And so um, at some point, you know, this has gone much too far. We've allowed the Chinese to take advantage of us. There are no longer any no-cost solutions. Um, but, you know, if people want to complain, they should be complaining about presidents named Clinton, Bush, and Obama um, as much as Trump, because Trump inherited this situation. Gordon Chang is author of The Coming Collapse of China. Gordon, there's also some news about uh, consolidation of power by Chinese Premier Xi Jinping, and there were some news reports just in the last 24 hours about the banning of of some words in China uh, for public discourse that seem like the kind of things that might be used to describe Xi that would not necessarily be to his liking. What's going on? Well, yeah, Winnie the Pooh is is now banned. So is Disney. Um, The words, I disagree. I mean, there are um, more and more words that are being um, taken off uh, the Chinese Internet. And the reason is that um, the Communist Party on Sunday announced that it was recommending to the National People's Congress, which will meet uh, on starting on the 5th of this month, that they will recommend the abolition of the two-term uh, term limit for president of the country. That's president of the state. That's a relatively unimportant post in China. It, they've got what's called the Trinity, uh, and the presidency is only one of the Trinity. The other two are general secretary of the Communist Party and the chairman of the party's Central Military Commission. By far, the presidency is the least important of the Trinity. And what Xi Jinping has been showing the rest of the world is that although this is a ceremonial post, he is willing to go to any lengths to make sure that he can hang on to power. And that's chilling. Um, so at this point, we've got to assume that Xi Jinping wants to be, as they say in China, emperor for life. And that's going to have consequences that are roiling the Chinese political system at the moment. Um, people in China aren't very happy about this for the most part. And China's probably going to end up with a much more coercive political system and probably a much more belligerent external policy. Um, so this is bad news for everybody. That was the next question I was going to ask you, Gordon, which is what becomes the external flash? What are the most likely external flashpoints as she continues this consolidation of power over a country that, you know, Russia gets a lot of talk these days. And we've been discussing Russian nukes even here on the show. But China is a long term, much bigger competitor to the United States, both economically and militarily. Well, certainly. Um You know, and the question is, like, where are we going to see this? I mean, it could be anywhere. China is trying to grab territory from India, and and you can see that there's an arc of instability to its south and to its east, um, all going all the way up to South Korea in the north. Um, You have China uh, engaging in all sorts of dangerous activities along that periphery. It's trying to spread into the Indian Ocean. It wants to actually establish a base on the Atlantic Ocean, from what we can tell, at Walvis Bay in Namibia. They're snooping around the Azores. 
Um, you know, I, this is a country that just sort of thinks that it can take whatever it wants. And I can understand why they feel that way, because we've had a succession of presidents who have not effectively opposed this expansionism. So we have emboldened the worst elements in the Chinese political system by showing everybody else that aggression works. You know, when they look back at this period, I, I hope that things go away and we don't have a, a global conflict. But if we do, Buck, people are going to look at the United States in the same way they looked at Britain and France in the 1930s and just ask, why didn't you use your power to protect yourself and the rest of the world? Um, so I think we're going to be vulnerable to that if um, – you know, the Chinese actually do something horrible because we've shown them that it's okay to be horrible. We complain about it, but we don't do anything about it. And that's for the reason why I think we've got to change our China policies quickly. Gordon, uh, one more thing before I let you go. Tell me about Broadcom and the possible takeover of Qualcomm and, and why this is something we should pay attention to. Yeah, Broadcom is a Singapore-based company. Um, there's going to be a proxy fight, uh, shareholder vote on Tuesday. Broadcom will probably win. Um, what Broadcom has done in the past is it uh, sells off parts um, and then ruthlessly controls costs. The reason why this is important to us is because uh, there is a struggle now for setting 5G standards for cellular communications. Whoever controls 5G is going to control communications for the next decade or so. The only American company that has a chance of um, establishing and winning the 5G race is Qualcomm. But there's no way Qualcomm is going to win if Broadcom takes it over because they're just going to try to um, sell it off. Um, and so we have a national security issue here because we do not want the Chinese controlling cell communications for the rest of the world for about a decade. So it's, in a sense, the same reason we need a domestic steel industry for national security purposes. You're saying this is a commercial issue, but it's also a communications and therefore a security issue as well. Yeah, and, and, and um, Qualcomm is so much more important than the steel or aluminum industries. So um, this, is, this is the lifeblood of America. It's, it's innovation technology, and um, you know we can't allow a state-backed Chinese enterprise, which is Huawei Technologies, to dominate global communications uh, for obvious reasons. So much more important than steel or aluminum. All right. Gordon Chang, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Buck. Team, we're hitting a quick break. We'll be right back, uh, and we'll have the folks from Black Rifle Coffee here in studio with us. We have the uh, CEO. We have the Vice President, uh, they are veterans, they are great guys, and they're going to tell us about the founding of their company and one of our, uh, a great, a wonderful sponsor of the show, but also a great American story here of veterans and entrepreneurship. So we're excited to have, oh, they're, they're waving, I see, and they're, they're coming in. We got the guys coming in right now. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. In the Freedom Hut today, we have a couple of guests with us. I am very pleased to bring on Evan Hafer, CEO and founder of Black Rifle Coffee, and Matt Best, Vice President and Chief of Happiness for all things Black Rifle. Uh, we have them here with us. As you guys all know, Black Rifle is a sponsor of the show. They also have a great backstory, a great message, and mission. And so I want to bring them in to talk to everybody about how this all got started. Gentlemen, thank you for joining. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. We appreciate the opportunity, Mike. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so as as we went on air, I told them that the one thing I have to do, and this is important for all of you listening, if you're ever in an interview situation on radio or TV, 
the one trick, and I've been told this by some of the bigger anchors in the business, you have to write the name down in front of you, even if someone gives you a sheet of paper, because if you get the name wrong, that's all anybody remembers. But you can call me whatever you want, because you guys are wonderful sponsors here of the show, and I'm really pleased to have you. Uh, Evan, tell me about how this all got started. I mean, a couple of Spec Ops guys, coffee doesn't necessarily well, come together as the first thing you think about. I'm just saying, it's not... No, it doesn't. I think, in, and for years, guys used to make fun of me for being such a coffee head. Uh, it, I started roasting coffee 10 years ago, but my love affair with coffee started... 20 years ago. See, I was an analyst, so I feel like I'm supposed to be the latte master, but apparently you're a man of many uh, talents. Yeah, I, I was, you know, I, I, I've spent some time behind an espresso machine. I've spent some time behind the roaster. For me, coffee started 20 plus years ago, you know, 1995 with, uh, with falling in love with espresso and just diving into the art of it and deploying back and forth into Iraq and Afghanistan, well, my entire adult life. Can you uh, tell a little about your military sure. career, by the way, for a lot of the folks listening? They may not know that right. you're not just a guy who knows a lot about coffee, and they're like, why is Buck saying he's such a renaissance yeah. man? What's yeah. with coffee? Like, There are reasons. Well, yeah, I, I, I suppose so. I've been called that before. I don't know if I necessarily warrant the, the title, but uh, I was a Green Beret for well for several years, and then I transitioned over as a contractor to the CIA for a little while. Uh, I spent about five years on the ground in Iraq and another couple in Afghanistan. I, I did several trips, uh, as, as you know how those trips go, uh, typically around 90 to 120 days. But I'd spend most of my time overseas in Iraq, Afghanistan, a few other places around the world. Uh, I found that having a great cup of coffee in the morning was was really important to me. And I started roasting coffee just for that because I couldn't find the coffee that I wanted. And you know, uh, and Matt knows, the coffee overseas really just so doesn't bad. get it done. It's bad. It's barely coffee, really. I wouldn't even it is kind coffee, of it yeah. to call it it's coffee. Horrible. Usually. I would just throw ice cubes in it and just throw it down as quick as possible because I didn't care about the taste. I just yeah. wanted the caffeine. I, and I was the same way. I, I just I I fell in love with it. I started diving into the roast profiles really deeply around 2008. And one of my bags I would take overseas was full of fresh roasted coffee, and the other was full of like kit. So everybody knew when I was coming into the country. Everybody knew what kind of coffee it was going to be bringing. And more importantly, it just, it, it made me kind of immerse myself into something completely different than what I was doing in, in combat zones. It gave me kind of a, a recreational therapy in a way that I, I really could excel at something outside of combat. Right, Matt, you also have a military background and tell us a bit about that and how you guys linked up to start a veteran owned and operated business in this area. Absolutely. I'm a former armed ranger, did five deployments with second ranger battalion, got out, didn't really like the civilian sector too much because I had a little difficult time assimilating back into, you know, it's it's difficult, especially been playing war for so many years. And then I uh, started contracting with the agency as well. And then during that time, which is actually a really funny story, I was um, in a Ford operating base and there was an espresso machine and it had to be like $15,000. And I'm sitting there going, why did the government waste that much money on an espresso machine? Well, come to find out, Evan had coursed the, uh, the, the guys doing supply to purchase that machine just a couple of years before. So when I linked up with Evan with Black Rifle Coffee, I was like, of course you did that, Evan. Of course you convinced the government to buy this amazing espresso machine so you could develop your roast profiles while you were you know, playing war. It wasn't hard. It really wasn't. They came to me and asked me what kind of machine, and, and literally I was like, well, if you're going to ask me, what kind of a budget do we have? And that's your taxpayer dollars hard at work. That's what they wanted. That's first thing I got. do every day is drink coffee, and as I say on the show constantly, first 
thing I do every day is, in fact, to drink some Black Rifle coffee. So thank you, gentlemen, very much for that. I'm a silencer smooth guy for the most part. Really? I, nice. I mix it up a little bit. I'm also Freedom Blend, but I like the silencer smooth. All right. But I wanted you to tell me a little bit, uh, Evan, about what your uh, about the mission of, of hiring veterans. And you have one story in particular that really stuck out to me about how you don't just have veterans of the United States Armed Forces working for you. You actually have some foreign auxiliaries who worked alongside U.S. forces from Afghanistan who have immigrated to the United States. That's a pretty amazing story. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of guys, you know, we're known for hiring veterans because we've, we've got above 50% hiring uh, with veterans along our, uh, our entire workforce. We're rolling out a pretty big expansion over the next year. We're going to try to maintain that 50%. Obviously, it's all based on how many applicants we can get. So go to blackriflecoffee.com and you can take a look Flash at our- yeah, no. <laughs> take, take a look at the job openings that we have. We'll be hiring people in Nashville, San Antonio, Sparks, Nevada- uh, and the the Afghans, these guys that we actually worked with overseas in Kabul province, they were uh, commandos that worked for the Americans alongside of them. Uh, one particular, Wally, we did a video on him. You could go to YouTube and check that out. But uh, he was with us basically right after the invasion of Afghanistan all the way through 15 um, so he was with us basically for 14 years and he had been on thousands of direct action missions, uh, which, you know, is, is basically direct action. Means he's a door combat. kicker. Yeah. He's a door kicker. Uh, he went from private to commander, uh, throughout that 14 years, he was having to move his family every six months to protect them, survived multiple ambushes, not only, you know, with his unit, but with his family. Uh, he applied, received refugee status. Uh, he immigrated into the United States. Uh, was working in a gas station when we when we got a hold of him. We, my business partner and I, were talking. We actually thought he was killed a, a couple years back. So when he reached out, we were not only like pleasantly surprised, but we were we, the first thing we said was, "Let's get him on a plane. Let's get him out here." So. Uh, got him on a plane, got him a house, uh, got him taken care of. He's got six kids. So he just had another, another little one actually. And now we've got a total of five Afghan, former Afghan commandos that work for us in our production shop. So they're printing t-shirts and doing a bunch of things for us, but fantastic guys. And I think that's the thing that Americans really need to understand too is, uh, you know, shoulder to shoulder, there's been a heavy burden placed on the American veteran, but also there's a lot of Afghans and Iraqis that were heavy, that were carrying just as much of the combat load out there. And those guys were defending your freedom just as they were defending mine and defending us downrange. We do owe them an incredible amount of gratitude. And that's a debt that, that I'm focused on repaying not only to the veteran community, but in my lifetime, this is the single most uh, prominent thing in my life, which was the American foreign wars that we've been involved in. Uh, my ethical responsibility to the nation is to make sure that I can primarily focus on the men and women that have been fighting the wars that we've been in for, I mean, we invaded Iraq in 2001. We can all do math. There's thousands of men and women out there, Americans and foreigners that need, they don't need a handout. They need an opportunity, a hand up. And my responsibility as a business is to make sure that we're growing the company and maintaining that ethical uh, orientation to make sure that we're always making, making sure that we can put the veteran first ahead of everything else. 
So that's that's the main mission of Black Rifle Coffee. So we've got Evan Hafer, CEO of Black Rifle Coffee, in studio with us right now, and Matt Best, Vice President uh, and Happiness Guru, um, <laughs> as well as uh, just all all around all around guy takes care of all kinds of things. Right? I've seen the videos, my friend. The videos are exceptional. We we definitely have fun. I always say it's a satirical representation of my values. You know, we're obviously constitutionalists and pro Second Amendment, and we like to have fun with it and obviously be safe. Tell me a bit about the expansion, though. What's going on now in 2018? You guys are, I mean, I I know a little bit about it because I'm actually going to be with you in Savannah next week for the opening of your first brick and mortar store. That will be actually our third. Third brick and mortar store. Thank you. Um, yeah, we're moving our headquarters down to San Antonio, Texas, so taking corporate there. Uh, there's just going to be a lot of opportunity, and the veteran pool down there is significantly larger, so we hope to you know, employ a lot more veterans down there, and then we're going to be rolling out brick and mortar and retail and just a lot of cool stuff, expanding the company and just chasing opportunity and trying to give it back to the community as well. For any folks listening, by the way, if they want to join in Savannah, how would they find out about the event? If they want to come, buy some gear and check out the, the bounce castles, the, the gear, what else is going to be there? Yeah, we're doing that with uh, Nine Lines. So Nine Line Apparel, as you know, uh, we're opening a coffee shop inside of their business. So they can go check Nine Line out. They can check us out on social media. We're going to be posting throughout that entire time. Uh, March 9th and 10th. And um, yeah. I'll be there. A bunch of other cool veterans will be there hanging out and shaking hands and just having a good time. Yeah, we got helicopters. Helicopters, yeah. of course. We got all kinds of stuff going on. It's better than there. bounce castles. All right. I, yeah. I mean, yeah. bounce castles are fine, but yeah. helicopters add a little spice to things. Well, all right, everybody, check them out. Evan Hafer, CEO, and Matt Best, Vice President of Black Rifle Coffee. And thank you, gentlemen, by the way, for being wonderful sponsors of the show. We are very pleased and honored to have you. And thanks for coming in studio. Thank thanks, you. Buck. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with uh, Evan and Matt from Black Rifle. They're, they're great guys. I'm actually going to be joining them. Right after the show here for some drinks out on the town, catching up about things. And it's always uh, fun to talk to some guys who uh, worked on the national security side of things so we can tell tell stories about, well, they can tell war stories about Iraq and Afghanistan. And I can tell uh, memo, you know, and, and analysis stories about Iraq and Afghanistan. But it's a good, it's, it's a good time, nonetheless. Good time. Uh, we, we get to wrap on all that stuff. So... Uh, This is where we get into, as you know, Roll Call. Team Buck, (laughs) it's time for Roll Call. I will note something. So yesterday, it was almost an accident. I was trying to download one song to use for Roll Call uh, from my desktop, and I I pulled something that was not for Roll Call. But what I noticed, a lot of you were like, you know what, it's better. And so we've decided that instead of having the the little drummer boy thing there, Da, 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 da. Uh, instead of that, uh, we are going to try to mix it up a little bit and, and have a little more uh, a little more audio audio variety here on the show. And so uh, we're going to try to spice it up and surprise you with our roll call tunes. And, and just in general, we're going to try to mix up some of the uh, what they call I guess they call it is imaging the correct term, John, right? The Yeah. Imaging, which is weird because an image is something you see. And yet in radio, it's all audio. But now. Now I'm talking nonsense. Who cares? All right. These are your uh, thoughts, your uh, whimsical references, whatever you've got for me. Uh, and you can add to them, of course, at Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And let, send me your thoughts. Let's get into it. Uh, first up, Eric, I was catching up on your podcast and heard you are coming to Savannah. I am in charge of the Savannah Police Canine Unit. 
it would be cool if we could meet you at Nine Line and get a picture with you and a couple of our canine handlers and their dogs. I would love to put it on our Facebook page, Savannah Police Canine Unit, if you don't mind. What day are you going to be here? Eric, not only do I not mind, that sounds awesome. Count me in. I will be down in Savannah, and I'll be hanging with Nine Line and Black Rifle on Friday. Um, n- not this Friday, the March 9th, I think it is. So I'll be, and any of you, any of you listening, if you want to, and it's not just me, you'll hang out with you know Matt and Evan, the Black Rifle guys, the Nine Line guys. Uh, Tyler will be there. He's the CEO. His crew will be there. Uh, it should be a lot of fun, and you can come check it out. It's just at the Nine Line Apparel store, and Black Rifle's opening a franchise in this store, so uh, it'll be a great time down in Savannah. And yes, Eric of the K9 unit, by all means, my friend, uh, please do uh, tell folks that I'll be there, and I'll, I'll be there probably around lunchtime during the day on Friday, and I'll just be hanging out for a few hours, and I'll leave to do my radio show. That's the way it's going to go. Next up here, uh, Frank writes, Hi, Buck. Trump saying, I like taking guns away first before due process It is is exactly what cops do or try to do every time they come upon somebody with a weapon who is obviously a threat. Um, Hmm. Okay, Frank. I mean, there's the there is something about officer safety. That is actually a a provision of law that officers have. This is why they, they can ask, do you have anything sharp on you? Even if you haven't committed a crime, do you have anything sharp on you? Do you have anything? And they can take that for the purposes of the interaction. Now. Look, I was never uniformed uh, officer or on patrol, so if I'm messing up any of the... I, I had the patrol guide and I had to read it when I worked for the NYPD, but I was not uh, the guy who was putting the bracelets on. Cool term for handcuffs. Uh, my, the, the other thing is I always liked the some of the cop terminology that I picked up. Like in New York, whatever precinct you work in, somebody will ask you and you have to say, that's what I turn out of. What do you turn out of? I turn out of the 16th. I turn out of the 19th precinct. And if somebody ever says, you know, I work for the 23rd precinct, it's like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. By the way, this also applies to a whole lot of uh, CIA lingo. Uh, I can always tell if somebody's either embellishing or not really what they say they are because of just certain things that people will say who worked in the agency versus people who maybe like showed up one day for a meetings, you know, as, as a government counterpart or something. Anyway, uh, let's see what we got here next in the inbox. Um, Mike, uh, just laugh at a joke you talked about the other day. I was in the county team meeting today, and it was announced that we officially are no longer countering ISIL, but we'll be defeating ISIS. I thought you would enjoy the humor in that distinction. Well, yes, I certainly do. And I was always on the right side of this issue. I was not saying ISIL because it was pedantic nonsense and there was just no reason because here's you, you don't you okay let me explain because people say oh Buck it's about a, no it's not about disrespect to Israel guys okay it's it's because this the, Obama would say ISIL ISIL because the same reason he would say Pakistan and Taliban because he thought it sounded more sophisticated and Obama was the professorial genius uh, president right so that was what ISIL was all about But Levant, the purpose of an acronym is to simplify things, as you all know. And those of you who are military or former intel like me know that you go through this whole period where you can have conversations. It just feels like one acronym after another. But Levant is a term that that honestly very few people know. 
So to use an acronym and one of the words in the acronym you're choosing to use is a complex term that isn't even really a geographic it, it isn't even really geographically defined uh, is just bizarre. And I'm so glad that we finally got rid of it. It was just Obama, the White House, and some of the executive branch agencies, because Obama ran them, that were doing that. So anyway, yes, it is ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. I've been saying for a long time we should rebrand the Al-Qaeda franchise in, which is obviously not ISIS, but we should, uh, it was Jabhat al-Nusra, and now there's been some realignments and changes, and I forget what's going on with it. I'm not as up on the uh, jihadist uh warlordism that's going on inside of Syria right now as I as I have been in previous months but I can tell you uh, that we should have just called instead of Jabhat al-Nusra which was the Al-Qaeda franchise could have just called them Al-Qaeda in Syria why not AQS right there we, we do this everywhere else AQSA is Al-Qaeda South Asia AQI Al-Qaeda Iraq like why everyone's running on Jabhat al-Nusra and then everyone's like oh do I spell it with the apostrophes and it gets all complicated so Anyway, um, I did not get through nearly enough uh, of your thoughts today, folks. I promise you tomorrow we'll have a more robust roll call and we'll have cooler music, too. All right. So, John, hold me to it. We got to have some cool music tomorrow for roll call because we're hip here in the Freedom Hut. We know how to party. Shield tie. <laughs>